As you may have noticed, our gospel readings for the past few weeks in John have centered on what's called Jesus' bread of life discourse. And these are going to continue for the next several weeks. A couple of weeks ago, you heard me talk about Jesus' abundance mentality versus the disciples' relative mindset of relative scarcity. And last week, you heard Peggy's wonderful sermon about St. Peter's bread of life and how it feeds many members, especially new ones, with its offerings of safety, hospitality, and acceptance. And it was a wonderful sermon and a particularly tough act to follow, I have to admit. And even many of you pointed out that it moved you to tears. So I can't guarantee tears today, but hopefully something will stick. This week we have Jesus picking up where he left off last week, making his bread of life claim that he is the bread of life, and then rebuking his doubters who dispute that he can be from God because they know he's the son of Joseph and Mary. I'll come back to the gospel in a minute, but in, in addition, you may have noticed, in addition to making our way through the Gospel of John and the Bread of Life discourses, we're also working our way through Ephesians in the Epistle reading. In fact, the lectionary calls for us to read more of Ephesians this year than any other book except the Gospels in the New Testament. And it made me wonder, why the emphasis on this one book? Now, Ephesians has a checkered history. Originally thought to have been written by the Apostle Paul, most Bible scholars now agree that it was probably written by one of Paul's followers sometime in the latter part of the first century. And many in this audience may have a bad taste in their mouth for Ephesians, either because it's, it emphasizes an outdate patriarchal household code. You know, this is the book where it says, wives be subject to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the household. And knowing you all, I know that doesn't go over very well here. <laughs> it's also problematic because it has one of the biblical, what's called the clobber verses, that are used against human sexuality, especially LGBT, that's found in chapter 4 and elsewhere in Ephesians. So sitting in the pews today, you have all the right to disagree with Ephesians, given its questionable heritage and outdated associations. But there's a lot of good in Ephesians, good words that spoke to the early church and good words that speak to us today. Much of the book was written as an appeal for unity amid diversity. For unity, in their case, amid diversity of Gentile and Jew. And I think unity, in our case, amid racial, sexual, gender, theological, economic, and even political diversity. How do we, as Christians baptized into a new life in Christ, recognize and raise up what unites us and accept and praise our diversity? Now that's a pretty good message, I think. And today's reading gets us to think about how we live together amidst all this diversity. What habits and practices accompany this new life, this baptized life in Christ? Now it's cliche to say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But today's reading does call for us to be imitators of God as beloved children. So you might say that that imitation is the sincerest form of worship. And that's a pretty good blueprint, I think, a place to start for how we might live this life, this baptized life in Christ. 
The majority of the reading gives us more detail about what we should and shouldn't do to imitate God in our lives. First, we're grounded in truth to our neighbors. And we don't just speak truth because it's the right thing to do based on a virtue ethic or because one of the Ten Commandments tells us not to lie. But we speak truth because we are members of one another. We speak truth because lying to yourself is not a sustainable way to live. We speak truth because what unites us is greater than what keeps us apart. And that truth can be, and in fact needs to be, not just our good stuff, but that which makes us afraid, vulnerable. In verse 32, and I know I'm risking sounding like an old-time preacher up here citing gospel chapter and verse, but we're, we're told specifically to be kind, tender-hearted, and vulnerable. We speak our truth when times get tough financially, or when we have a health scare, an addiction, or when we're simply sad. We speak truth because we can trust that we are neighbors, that we are members of one another. I particularly like that the writer of Ephesians recognizes that we have emotions, that we are people after all, and that one of those emotions is anger. He, and there's little doubt it's a he, doesn't think we should abide in some new age spiritual belief that we never get angry, that we somehow push that all down. And if you think about it, Jesus spends much of the Gospels angry at the crowds, angry at those who oppose him, angry at the disciples, even angry at a fig tree. So imitating God includes being angry. But Ephesians tells us what to do with that anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This verse is frequently cited in marriage counseling as a way of building a healthy relationship, and it's definitely good advice. But I wonder what a sunset rule on anger might look like when we watch cable news or read an offending Facebook post. How might we view each of our sunsets here in the River Valley, not just for the often beautiful works of art they are, but also a divinely inspired call to press reset on our anger and just let go? Ephesians has something to say about how we talk to one another and about one another. We're not to say evil things, things like gossip or name-calling to one another, but instead to build up so that your words may give grace to those who hear. So that your words may give grace to those who hear. That's some pretty powerful stuff, this grace. We spend a lot of time in church talking about grace, and it's usually about God's grace, freely given in unlimited quantities. But here, we're called to be vessels, the transport system of that grace. In imitating God, we are to offer grace to those who hear to help them open up to the never-ending flow of God's grace. Finally, we're not to be thieves, but instead to do honest work with our hands. And this is not the hackneyed Puritan work ethic that we hear so much about, but we work so as to have something to share with the needy. Now, I hope the idea of being an actual thief is something that's distant from this crowd, and if not, come and see me about confession afterwards. But what if we think of stealing, of being a thief, in a broader sense? What if we're stealing when we let our time and attention take us away from our neighbor, from our community? 
What if we let our own concerns cloud our ability to see that a young family is struggling to make ends meet during this back-to-school time? What if we don't see the hurting widow who used to come here but hasn't shown up in weeks and nobody gives her a call? What if we're distracted on our iPhone when a friend tells us about an upcoming surgery? Isn't that a kind of stealing? So we don't steal, but work, which means pay attention and listen to help those in need. There's no doubt the book of Ephesians has its problems. But as we listen and study it over the coming weeks, I invite us to pay close attention to its good parts. Because it's kind of an instruction manual, if you will, on how to live a life in imitation of God, of Christ. Back to today's Gospel, we see Jesus make the wildly provocative claim that he is not only the bread that keeps us from being hungry or thirsty, but is in fact the bread that came down from heaven, the bread that came from God. And this would be highly offensive to those around him, those who doubt him. And unfortunately, they're labeled the Jews in, in, in James and John, which has led to centuries of anti-Semitism. But they're actually the people that just disagree with them. And it makes sense. Because if Jesus comes directly from God, that would put Jesus ahead of all the prophets and of their beloved Moses. So they respond with a derogatory, isn't he just the son of Joseph and Mary? But he didn't stop there. He goes on and ups the stakes, claiming that no one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. Today's Bread of Life discourse leaves no doubt that for Christians, Jesus is the answer to salvation. And later in verse 47, he says, Whoever believes in me has eternal life. And this strikes me as incredibly condensed assimilation of what we believe as Christians, that whoever believes in Jesus will live. Another verse in John, John 3.16, has taken on its own place in our popular imagination, famous at football games and billboards across the country. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's probably one of the few Bible verses that almost anyone can recite by heart. But I wonder, in this age of 140-character Twitter feeds and news crawls at the bottom of our television screens, if John 3.16 is now too long, that instead the less well-known John 6.47, whoever believes in me has eternal life, should replace it as a pithier, more condensed assertion of our faith that we carry in public. But if our faith is captured in this one single verse, what do we do with the rest of the Bible? The 72 other books that are out there. Books like Ephesians. One suggestion is we think of today's John 6.47 as a summary. A simple assertion of what we believe when we consider the rest of the sacred Bible as lessons and examples and stories of how we believe. That it is an instruction manual of belief. That by understanding and digesting our scripture, we learn how, in the words of the Ephesians writer, we learn how to be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen.